In this episode of 9to-i Talks, Radhika Jones, Marie Brenner, and Tina Brown take a penetrating look at the last 35 years of Vanity Fair stories on women, by women, as revealed in a new book, Women on Women, edited by Radhika Jones. They examine everyone from Gloria Steinem to Princess Diana to Michelle Obama to Lena Waithe, as well as landmark essays on sexual harassment and Me Too. The conversation was recorded on December 12, 2019, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Hello. It is um, such a privilege to be on stage with these absolute legends. Um, and I, uh, I'm hoping that we're all, each one of us is used to asking the questions, but tonight I'm going to try to ask the most questions and let these two women tell their stories. But before we start with that, I just wanted to tell my own little story about how this book came to be. Um, it was almost exactly two years ago that I started working at Vanity Fair. And in my first week on the job, I was speaking with David Friend, a longtime editor at the magazine, um, about whether we might put together a new anthology from the archive. And you know, we were like two, three months into the Me Too story. And it was very apparent every day with the news cycle how, um, in certain systemic ways, women in Hollywood and in other fields had been uh, silenced or sidelined from framing their own stories. And from the point of view of the Harvey Weinstein story, we were hearing about actors, um, actresses who had been dissuaded from uh, pursuing a career in the business because of his behavior, and we were hearing about um, pundits and journalists on television, male journalists who had been uh, accused of harassment and were out there framing a conversation around Hillary Clinton. And so I, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, here I am. I've, um, I've been so lucky to inherit this magazine that was revived in the 1980s by Tina Brown, the legendary editor, who, who um, herself represented this just absolutely raw and edgy um, sensibility and assigned all these fantastic profiles to um, women and men as well. But you know, there, there were many memorable pieces by women. And so, and Graydon Carter continued that tradition. And so I had at my fingertips this archive um, with so many really probing, deep, uh, rounded and textured stories about women by women. and. What I like to say after that is that they are not just for women, obviously they are for everyone. Um, because they do tell the story of our culture. And, uh, and it's not that women write differently from men or that female journalists are different from men. It's that, um, it's that we have a collection of incredibly strong pieces that tell a certain story about um, our world over the last 35 years and even before that because some of the figures in this book date earlier to that. So with that in mind, um, I wanted to throw the first question to Tina who, um, came to Vanity Fair and, um, among other things, made it um, uh, a, a great source of interest for the American public um, it, to follow the royal family in Britain. And you wrote, and the piece in the book that you wrote is called The Mouse That Roared, and it's about Diana. Yes. Um, and so talk about that and what it was like to cover the greatest, the most of her moment, the most important celebrity of the time. Well, thank you, Radhika. It's wonderful to have uh, Radhika there at Vanity Fair. I was so happy to see another editor at the helm. And of course, Marie Brenner, who was my very first hire, okay, at Vanity Fair, because we had already met in London 
Marie was the only person I really knew in New York, but I also did know she'd be the first person I would try to lure away from New York Magazine, and I was so happy that I did, certainly for the sake of the magazine. Uh, Diana has, was just an amazing story. I started covering Diana when I was editor of Tatler because she rose at the same time that I was there. So, you know, I was 20, you know, five or six, Diana was 19, and so there was a closeness in age between her generation and mine, and all the people who worked at the Tatler kind of knew people who knew Diana. So we were able to kind of own the Diana story at the Tatler. And I would actually say that, uh, you know, it was a bit like, for, Tatler, for, for us, for Diana was like the O.J. Simpson story for, for CNN, you know? It was like, she was that, the car chase, you know? I mean, she, she absolutely was, she, she made Tatler. So when I took over uh, at Vanity Fair, I was still obviously deeply fascinated by Diana, and I began to hear from my sources, my old Tatler sources, you know, whenever I was in London, that things were not going as well with Diana as the public thought. This was in 1985. Uh, she'd been, you know, they'd been married for three or four years at that point, and the fairy story was still the big story, you know, on the world stage. The wedding, everything was in people's minds as Diana as the fairy princess. And what I kept hearing was that things were going extremely badly, that backstage Diana had, was having tantrums, that, you know, staff were quitting, Charles was looking miserable, the marriage was, was on the rocks. So I went over to London to report that story and sort of reactivated all the dusty duchesses and all the, you know, the, the old courtiers and all the people at the, the, my Tatler network to get what was really going on. And when I read the piece today, um, it really strikes me how many parallels there are to the way Diana was written about at the time and considered at the time to the way Meghan Markle is being considered. And I mean, the piece at the very beginning talks about what people are saying about her at that particular moment, which was in October 1985. And what I wrote was magazines and newspapers in every capital crackle with backstairs back chat about the princess's autocratic ways. She has banished all his old friends. She has made him give up shooting. She throws slippers at him when she can't get his attention. She spends all his money on clothes. She forces him to live on poached eggs and spinach. <laughs> the debonair Prince of Wales, His Royal Highness, Duke of Cornwall, heir to the throne, is, it seems, and I, here I have to use a word which I'm not sure I'm allowed to say at the Y, but I'm going to say it anyway. Here, uh, heir to the throne is, it seems, pussy-whipped from here to eternity. All right? So, you know, this is what I was hearing, that she was just this huge diva. And Charles, you know, thoughtful Charles was being, you know, beleaguered and, and so on. And when I wrote the piece, when it came out, I mean, all hell broke loose. In fact, I remember I was uh, asleep in my apartment <laughs> in October of 1985, and suddenly I, I was woken up by a phone call, and it was uh, the time of Hurricane Gloria. And I picked up the phone, and this voice said, is that Tina Brown? I said, yes. He said, this is Rod from the Daily Mail, right? Everybody at the Daily Mail is called Rod, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is Rod from the Daily Mail. Is that Hurricane Tina? I said, what do you want? <laughs> he said, well, I mean, you've caused a fuss, haven't you? You know, and then they did this huge takeout on Diana, you know, revelations of the cracks in the marriage. You know, everything was mayhem. It was all my fault. And it was such a huge story that Diana and Charles did something which they'd never, no member of the royal family had ever done before. They actually went on BBC television to deny it together 
which then I realized well, it was completely true because the thing about the palace, Buckingham Palace, is they never deny anything unless it's absolutely true, right? <laughs> Otherwise, they just don't say anything. So it was, an, it was a big uproar, but it was, a, 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 it, it was the first piece that basically talked about the marriage being in, in trouble. And uh, of course, later it turned out that it was true. But for a long time, I was trashed about it. And in fact, the Daily Mail did this huge takeout on my marriage uh, with me as Di and Harry as, as Charles. And you know there was this. It was very funny, actually. We framed it, and it's it, it hung in our in our bathroom for about 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> we still use that maxim, you know, because of course we follow your lead and still report um, very robustly. I hope on the royal family. Yes, um, you've done some great pieces on the on and, Harry and Meghan, and, and more to come. I hope, but um, but we we love that principle that if the um, if they deny it, we know we we got it right. Indeed. Um, Marie, you were Tina's first hire. What what was it like for you in the early days at Vanity Fair and how did you how did you find your subjects or how did they find you? Well, it was such a joy. I mean it's such a joy to be on the stage with Tina, my dear wonderful friend, and with you, Radika, and to span this kind of amazing 35 year history of Vanity Fair. And I couldn't wait for Tina to come over from London and to come to Vanity Fair. And one of the first pieces on the women's beat that you sent me out on was Claire Booth Luce. Because Tina knows that I am absolutely drawn to the hidden aspect of historical figures, of these great gutsy women who never defined themselves through their gender. And no one exemplified that more than Claire Booth Luce. So I had the most fascinating time going back and speaking to a lot of her friends and recreating these astonishing moments where she would stand up on her on her like toes and give these bracing political speeches in the 40s and then of course recreating the tragedy of her life when her daughter was killed quite suddenly in a car crash and i think one of the extraordinary new things that you really pioneered at vanity fair tina was that aspect of what is lurking behind the lines. It's like just what you brought from the Diana piece, but also to get behind that. And Radhika, I was so impressed with how you and David um, edited this book, was rereading it in the last weeks. Um, just reading even a piece about Gloria Steinem, you mm -hmm. know, and I suddenly found myself swept away in learning this Leslie, very smart Leslie Bennett story of the whole hidden life she had of, you know, her food addictions and her problems with her mother. And, and it just brought such a kind of resonance to her history. Well, something that strikes me as I look at the book and as I confront daily the task of assigning pieces on the people who are vibrant in our culture now is there, um, there, I, I want to ask you both, do you feel that there's been a shift in the accessibility of subjects like these? I mean, both pieces you're talking about, you, obviously Diana didn't speak to you and you were writing about Claire Booth Luce from a historical perspective, but, um, but you both obviously interview people who are alive and well. And one thing, I mean, it strikes me that there's a kind of openness and vulnerability to many of the women in this book. I think of Nicole Kidman, profiled by Ingrid Sishi, and it's a, a year after the breakup of her marriage um, to Tom Cruise. And that it was like, that. I mean, they were sort of the Charles and Di of that moment. Um, and it was, you know, the tabloids were saying crazy things about her. And she lets this journalist, 
who also knew her, into her life at this very raw moment. Well, I've got to say, I could not, that's exactly what I felt most profoundly reading this book. There are some wonderful pieces in here. Um, you know, Maureen North's uh, Tina Turner piece. I just love that piece. Yes. It's wonderful. And also really candid, too, talking about her abuse from Ike, Ike Turner and yes. such a candid way. But the most striking one to me is to reread is Gail Sheehy's piece about uh, Hillary Clinton, 1992, on the trail. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for the first uh, term of Bill Clinton. And she happens to be with her, this is what's so incredible, right with her as the Jennifer Flowers scandal broke. And the story of how, you know, the torch singer Jennifer Flowers had had an affair with Clinton and it looked like his candidacy was going down. They elected to do this famous 60 Minutes interview together, but she's right there. I mean, and, 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 and Hillary is turning to, to, to Maureen North and saying, if I had Jennifer Flowers in front of me, I would, and I was cross-examining cross her, I would crucify her. I mean, Hillary is saying stuff like right. this to her. Rather than saying, okay, time's up, please time's go. Up. Yeah. We know that we're yes. keeping this to ourselves. And it's, Gail it's is standing really there while amazing. she's phoning yes. Bill, and she's yeah. listening as, 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 as Hillary is saying to him, you know, but, you know, people won't even know how you even know this woman, Bill, you know? And she's sitting with Hillary on the plane as it's flying along, and Hillary's venting. And I'm thinking, who gets this kind of access now? You know, it's absolutely stunning. And, of course, it's what made the piece so amazing. And in the Maureen North piece on... Tina Turner. I mean, not only is she getting this incredible kind of stuff from Tina Turner, but she's got sort of passed through quotes at great length from Keith Richards and Mick Jagger. And I mean, it's like, and you just think to yourself, wow, you know, in those days, people really talked to journalists, you know? Well, this, this is a phenomenon of the 1990s. I don't think we get that kind of access anymore. I mean, because in this, in this, when these great heart-rending pieces were written, we were not toxified by social media. They were not worried about what was going to happen in Twitter. Uh, the, the way these pieces happened is you were allowed to hang around. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Richard Jewell that is just coming out in this new movie. I spent weeks in Atlanta with the Jewell family in the same way that Gail was given this extraordinary access that she could be right next to Hillary Clinton. I don't think this happens anymore. People are too afraid. We fight for it. We fight. Our journalists fight for it, and we fight them. And you, you know, in the pieces that you've done for me over the last couple of years, um, Bill Browder, uh, one of them, and more recently William Barr, um, there, there's a kind of, in the absence of that level of time and that level of embeddedness, um, of course, you still manage to bring texture to those profiles. How do you? How do you? confront that challenge? Well, it's hard. I mean, it, it's really hard because I do think that people now are very worried and they have, they're all surrounded with publicists. They're all worried about what's going, the t some Twitter mob coming after them. But you just keep trying. I mean, in the case of, uh, of William Barr, I was lucky because I was analyzing the attorney general through the prism of two schools. One, Dalton, where his father presided as the headmaster and became a kind of a Captain Quig figure, the other Horace Mann, where he was a kind of a young William F. Buckley. So in that, in that case, I was analyzing through his friends. Um, with, in, in the case of a, you know, sort of a recent woman I've profiled, um, gosh, who, who was the last one? Um, 
Well, I mean, the great story of interviewing women, when Tina and I were working together at The New Yorker, I was tearing my hair out trying to figure out Iran-Contra. Because again, what always draws me to stories is a justice issue or some kind of long investigative tale. Finally, Tina just threw her hands up and came into my office and said, for God's sake, I had the most fascinating lunch today with, of all people, Kitty Carlisle Hart. That's right. And she said, I want you to drop all this mucky, you're just like caught in the weeds, go out and do Kitty Carlisle Hart. And I was furious. Such a wonderful piece. I was, I was absolutely <laughs> furious, and I just thought, oh. What is that socialite going to teach me? Kitty Carlisle Hart, are you kidding me with her feathers and her sparkles? So I go on the worst day of the year. It is a Herculean snowstorm. I mean, you, you couldn't even move. And I call thinking, oh, well, she's going to cancel this interview. Of course she's going to cancel. Darling, we never cancel. And that day, I was set to go to Red Hook, where she was running the New York State Arts Commission. All that day, I followed her as she went and she greeted this ballet company and this art company in her heels and her sparkles. And we get back and she said, snap it up, darling, snap it up. You're lagging, you're lagging behind me. And when I get back and she said, I have, she said, I have 50 people from the, from the governor's office coming from dinner and the governor. And I finally looked at her and I said, Mrs. Hart, where do you get your extraordinary vitality and resilience. And she said, there's just one word, discipline. And with that, she drops to the floor and does 50 perfect leg lifts. And you know, from that, <laughs> from that day forward, I never resented the great Dame Beat. And I thought, oh my God, if I just give me one scintilla of that resilience. And she was then 88 years old, by the way. Well, it's sometimes an editor's <laughs> job to make the sort of smarty pants writers do the obvious story they don't want to do, right? And I had that experience at The New Yorker because Mark Singer was one of our best profilists. And, but it, he was always doing these kind of what I call arcane, what my husband calls tea shop journalism, where you sort of go off and write about a very interesting, obscure thing. And I said to him, you know, I'd ha I had a breakfast one day, I'm afraid, with Donald Trump. And I came back and I said, because I always thought that, that Mark was hysterically funny, and I said to Mark, Mark, just go and do a profile of Donald Trump. Just please, just do something. He goes, are you kidding me? I, he was just disgusted. This was like the worst <clears throat> picture that he had of me. The person who put Demi Moore on the cover of Vanity Fair was now asking him, Mark Singer, to go do Donald Trump. It was like his worst nightmare come true. And he resisted and he resisted, and then he finally just capitulated, and it turned out to be the defining piece of Trump. And one that he actually, he's turned into a book just recently as Trump and Me, about how he resisted doing that piece, but it was actually the funniest, most fabulous time. It was like you with, with, with Kitty Hart. He had all this access. You know, he, he, he stayed with him for like a week. It got funnier and funnier. And it coined wonderful things that have stayed forever, like Trump saying to him, this is off the record, but you can use it. <laughs> and, and it was just full of gems. <laughs> and, and, and him sending, he, he, he seeing Trump cash a check for two cents. Yes. Forget that one. Yes, I know, I know, it's true. It's full of gems. So, Tina, tell us a little bit more about how you thought at that time at Vanity Fair and The New Yorker, how you thought about assignments and even just the subjects you felt were ripe for exploration because there was a really wide range of them. And one thing that I think a lot about is that sometimes a profile is 
it, it's just really about a, someone who has charisma and is doing something interesting. And sometimes it's obviously about something bigger than that. And you're, look, you're looking for a kind of deeper connection to Well, the I, I always was interested in a piece through where the subject would be the prism for a world. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really what interested me. And, uh, and the other things that draw me to a story are, are chances to be counterintuitive, you know, where everybody's thinking this about a person and we're going to do the piece that really changes that picture in a way that's profound. We did a lot of that with, with Gail Sheehy's political profiles, actually. Uh, at The New Yorker, we did it too. I mean, I, I remember, well, actually, it was Vanity Fair, this piece, actually, yes. The piece i really quite proud of was uh, a piece that Joyce Johnson wrote. She's a literary writer who was actually wrote a great memoir of being on the road with Kerouac. And I assigned her to write a piece about a horrific murder case that had galvanized New York which was the murder of uh, Joel Steinberg, this appalling, uh, abusive man, had murdered the, his child with this publisher, this woman, uh, Joyce Nuss, uh, uh, Hedda Nussbaum. And Hedda Nussbaum uh, was an abused woman herself. And rightly, they were, they were both absolutely excoriated. But nonetheless, I felt that there was a bigger story to Hedda Nussbaum, that yes, it was appalling that this child had died on her watch, but nobody was taking into account, you know, the, the psyche of an abused woman as she was. And I wanted to find a writer who would really sort of relate to her. And, and I felt that Joyce Johnson was a woman who could easily have been, you know, a friend of, of, of Hedda Nussbaum. Hedda Nussbaum was actually a literary publisher herself, as was Joyce uh, Johnson. And I assigned Joyce to do the piece. And it was absolutely a magnificent piece about a woman who was, of course, culpable in a terrible way, but who had also found herself horrifically drawn to the darkness of Joel uh, Steinberg and had really, had, was a completely abused woman herself. Uh, and he humanized, a, she humanized a monster. And it was a very, very interesting piece. And that's the kind of story that I'm interested in, where you get behind what everybody else is saying and, and, and peel off that mask. Or if you can find a, a piece that, that uh, you know, like Marie's wonderful piece on, on um, Kitty Hart, which kind of also excavates the world of the society woman and peels off, you know, those masks and analyzes what is that value that drives a woman like Kitty Hart on. You start by laughing, but you end up admiring her, actually. Mm. These are the things that interest me and I think which interest the best writers, like Marie. One of the, the you make me think of one of the discoveries for me in the book which I'll just read a little bit of it. It's a write-around about Barbara Bush um, as First Lady. And uh, there's a, it's, it's quite long and very, very revelatory about the marriage and about her, how, how, what her role was. And there's a section of it um, that talks about the kind of the way that George H.W. Bush outsourced his certain like issues of compassion he would sort of outsource to his wife. And this is a sort of common trope in politics. And um, so just a little section. At the time of Bush's inauguration, columnists raved about how Barbara would be the conscience of the White House. But without Barbara, Americans might have noticed sooner that the self-styled education president had offered nothing meaningful in the way of education with reform. Without Barbara, voters might have noticed from the start how disengaged Bush seemed from domestic concerns. Barbara Bush successfully silenced the logical question that called out for response, isn't the president supposed to be the conscience of the White House? Mm. 
And it, just that, you know, it, at that moment, this piece ceases to be about Barbara Bush. And right. it becomes about how we think about women, mm -hmm. how we think about women and the way they exercise power, what, we, what burdens we place on them, what we expect of them. It's not like she's, um, she's the subject of this piece. She's not exactly a hero. But to use that study and to come to that mm -hmm. question, to me, is incredibly... Was that Leslie Bennett? Is that Marjorie um, Williams? It's Marjorie Williams. Marjorie Williams. She was a, such a fantastic profile writer. writer. Yeah. She died so young, but she yeah. was an extraordinary she was one of the writer. the best there was. Really exacting. Yeah. And it's a question for our time, too. And the Hillary Clinton piece from 1992 is prescient. Every, at every turn in that piece, somebody says, why isn't she the candidate? All the Literally parties. all of them. <laughs> all of them. Every single person in the piece is saying she should run, she should run. Yes. It, was, it was incredibly powerful to read that today, because you just think, you regret that all of that raw feistiness was kind of edited out of her. And you realize uh, how much of that raw ambition had to be suppressed when you read that piece. And the fact that everybody says, yes. why isn't she running? And she had a clarity then. Her message was so clear. Everybody talks about she's got such authority, such clarity. And yet, you know, that didn't come over in that last election run. Uh, so it's, it's also about what happens to women as they're sort of muted and buffeted and edited and, and squeezed into some gender box, which is what you feel kind of happened along the way. I was struck so last week watching the great women of the State Department, Fiona Hill and Maria Yankovic, Yovanovitch, testifying. And I was thinking all that week, as I'm sure you both were too, how much they are standing on the shoulders of Hillary Clinton and for that matter, yep. Madeleine Albright's mm -hmm. legacy. Yes. And that they were, the, the fact that we were able to see them as such tough, competent professionals with strong voices, we really, they, oh, they must, I wanted so much to be able to just reach through those screens, that screen and say, Tell me about being in a room with Hillary Clinton yeah. in the state. Tell me about what you learned from Madeleine Albright. Absolutely. You know, Hillary said to me on, on my podcast that it'll be, you know, before the campaign began, how much easier it was going to be for any woman running if they weren't the only woman running like she was. And that is absolutely true. I mean, because there's more women running uh, now, finally, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren has been, in a sense, able to degender herself, actually. I mean, she is not experiencing all that gender, yes. you know, flack and yes. trash that got sort of hurled on top of Hillary. She was sort of, she's been perceived much more cleanly than, than Hillary ever was. And the same with Amy Klobuchar, and that was what Hillary did for them. Right. She created that space for them to be that. And, uh, you know, that's going to be her, you know, maddening for her role, that's mm -hmm. what she achieved. But, you know, to your question about how has this changed, as a young reporter, I traveled with three different women. Geraldine Ferraro, just as she was getting the first nomination to be the first woman vice president, Bella Abzug, as she was running for Congress, and um, um, the former UN ambassador, uh, Jean... Jean Kirkpatrick. Jean Kirkpatrick. And, I mean, each one was trying to strike through a gender-free career trajectory. And it was so moving being with them because they were such ballsy, great women. And yet each one would get hamstrung by 
1970s, 1980s, women's limitation. You know, uh, famously, uh, Geraldine Ferraro, when it was Trump and Roy Cohn who pushed out the news of her husband being perhaps corrupt. You know, with Bella Abzug, it was, you know, again, another trap. And it was heartbreaking as a young reporter to watch this, this kind of weakening of these women. True. So, Marie, we need to get you on a news story. Who would you like to profile? Who's interesting to you right now? Who do you think could take some tough questions? Oh, well, I am, I, I'm, I'm, I've gotten very interested in the subterranean world of Middle East intelligence as practiced by the women agents in the field. So um, we haven't discussed it, but I have already started some very tough global reporting that's hard to get, but stay tuned. Okay, excellent. This is good. Tina, who, who, who would you like to read about or write about? Oh, so many interesting people right now. Um, I'm so interested in this. I'm still totally obsessed with Saudi, actually, I have to be honest. Uh, um, I tell you, there's a fantastic story. I know what I'd like to do now. It's the story of, of, of um, the princess uh, of Dubai uh, who ran away with her children to London. Mm -hmm. um, Great story. And what is going on there is absolutely fascinating. The, the ruler of Dubai, uh, one daughter ran away and was apprehended on the high seas and dragged back to Dubai and, and, and has not really been seen since. And then his wife has now fled with the two children. And I really want to read about what has been happening in that whole area, you know, because it's a way, again, about different worlds. That is a way to look through, the, look at the UAE, UAE and this whole yes. sort of whitewashing of women's rights in, uh, in these areas where they're all pretending that they're now empowering women and what is really going on behind the scenes. That's a very interesting story. That's a, that's a whole world waiting to be explored. Over to you, Radhika. Oh, well, I, um, I expect to see we'll it in talk the next more about issue. that afterward. No, I, yeah, I know. I have breakfast with Tina every few months, and she <laughs> comes with so many ideas, and we're, we're working on them. Um, uh, a question from the audience. Marie, who was the most surprising person you ever profiled? The most which was it? Surprising. Oh, surprising. Oh, interesting question. Well, the one who moved me the most, and I actually didn't know her, but I wrote about her just after she died, was Marie Colvin, mm. the great war reporter that became the basis for the movie that came out last year that Rosamund Pike starred in, Private War. And a classic, by the way, if you oh. want to read that piece. So, it's a classic piece. So, I mean, this remarkable, brilliant reporter who suffered with such addiction and such alcohol problems and so much PTSD from being a war reporter, going out into the most remote places, bearing witness, as she always said, to the most extraordinary human rights violations. And she would whine, she would go through a tunnel getting into Syria and she would be, you know, she had, she had lost an eye, she'd been blown up, and she would get into these kind of these ratty safe houses with you know, sort of these very sketchy figures. And she would sit down with no one else, and she was already in her 50s by then, and she would type 3,000 of the most perfect 
words that you can ever imagine and transmit them from satellite. And I don't know how she did it because she had health issues, she was addicted, and yet when she would pop open her laptop, that mind was right there reporting in the field. That surprised me. One for both of you. What advice do you have for young women uh, beginning their careers? In this field, I assume, not in like engineering or, you know. Uh. Oh, well, I mean, it's not a great time to go into journalism if you, if you are a young. No. Uh, no. <laughs> well, okay, so, so, okay, so, so do it's the, great okay, here's my, here's, my, here's my advice, like, do the big story. Exactly. Yeah. Don't right. fiddle around with some sort of little navel That's fluff. Right blog thing. Right. <laughs> go, go off and find out why Aung San Suu Kyi went to the dark side, this Nobel laureate who now has become a genocide defender. Yeah. And I mean, that's the kind of stuff that Samantha Power did when she began journalism. It was like you right. get out there and you exactly. figure out how to be a stringer or something right. and, yeah. and cover something big yes. because all the rest of it is a complete waste of noise and oh. just... Get out of the office. Get out of the office, yeah. Get away from your screen. Go into the field. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's very true. And the, the reason that I, I do, I mean, I'm not, I'm honestly, I'm not just plugging the, um, the thing that I think makes it a special time right now, actually, in particular, is, well, two things. One is that there are so many places to write for. I mean, the truth is, like, when I was starting even, you still had to put your resume and your clips in an envelope and put a stamp on them and send them off to someone and try to get in the door. And, you know, it was like, and now at least, um, you know, certain barriers have been broken down and gatekeepers are easier to find and there are a lot of outlets that you can write for. And as long as you don't expect to be paid. Well, so, you know, <laughs> okay. that's the but snack. The, so the other thing, so hopefully, yes, um, I mean, one has to take that into account. But the other thing is that at this particular moment, and we think about this a lot at Vanity Fair, um, because the press in America is under siege, um, because we are vilified by the president um, and, uh, and many of his followers, there is a kind of interest in journalism and an energy behind it that I haven't seen in a while. Um, and that doesn't change the economics of it and it doesn't change um, the opportunity, but but there, there, but it, it has kind of, there is a public service aspect to what we do that I think is really in relief. And our readers are interested in supporting that. And that's why, you know, places like the New York Times and the Washington Post and the New Yorker and Vanity Fair can thrive in this environment. Um, and granted, that's a small select group, um, but, it's, it, to me, as an editor, it's exciting to see the interest that a true investigative story can raise. So. Oh, this is a great time for reporters. Yeah. Because rep good reporters are usually driven by rage and outrage. We're off the charts now. We're at the thousand meter with that. Exactly. Um, so here's a question that is... Well, I'll, I'll read it and let you two decide. If you had your choice, would you prefer to profile a man or a woman? Now, I would say it doesn't break down that easily. And you're profiling a human, right? I mean, it's all about the curiosity of the narrative. I, I, you know, I, I 
I think I could do either as long as I've got that curiosity that's driving me to know what the hell was going on, yeah. really. You know, I mean, the story, what you want is not what happened, well, what really happened, you know? And that can be, it can be a story about Bill Barr or it can be a story about, you know, um, Princess Luce. But I mean, mm -hmm. the fact is that it's all about that driving curiosity about what really happened. Yeah. So, I don't know, I, I, I'm sort of gender free. Me too. Myself. Yeah. The, the, the fact is, the, for, for me, one of the disappointing aspects of this current moment is we have gotten into these silos of gender box prison. And Tina and I, I think, come from an era where all we wanted was to be gender free, to not even think about gender. And I, I don't think we did. I think we were very lucky. That we're lucky. It's like we sort of like broke through a lot of that and just went yeah. right for story. So the idea of male-female differences has always been something that I've had, I've found, you know, just sort of unsettling. You know, it's interesting. Um, Joan Didion and Susan Sontag would not even appear in collections that were women, women on women. They just hated any idea of gender identification because they felt, and I believe quite rightly, that it was just so limiting, that it limited them as writers and thinkers. Absolutely, and actually some of the best, uh, some of the very good stories in Vanity Fair about women were written by men. I mean, Dominic yes. Dunn's, some of Dominic Dunn's profiles on women were, you know, some of the best that Vanity Fair had. Um, so I, I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't think that women necessarily write better about women always. Yeah. The way I think about it when I'm assigning is there are some subjects who, um, you know, I, the way you think it through and you, you kind of want to send the person who is going to get that person to answer questions. That's and that's a question of chemistry. Yeah. And that can happen very yes. beautifully yes. between a man and a woman yes. or a woman and a woman. Sure. And sometimes it helps to be very matchy-matchy. Yeah. And sometimes you need sure. a different kind of spark. And so I think about that question not as sort of like, I prefer this kind of thing, but, um, the chemistry but question. who are the two people yes. involved mm -hmm. and how are they going to, how are they, mm -hmm. how are they gonna relate to each other? Um, and so in some of the pieces, you know, the, I think the first piece I really, the first profile I commissioned for Vanity Fair, my first cover was, Lena Waithe and, and Jackie Woodson profiled her. And they were quite, I mean, what they discovered, they didn't know each other. They're quite similar. Two yeah. queer black women, um, kind of similar backgrounds, different generations. And what that led to, which I was very pleased by, was a story that was about a community. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the goal. Mm -hmm. But that is not always the goal. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes you want animosity, I think, between your writer and your subject. Because it's fun on the page, right? It is fun. I tell you what I hate more than any single living thing is this thing of, you know, the, the sort of, the celebrity choosing, which is this new thing, yeah. this, this access poison in yes. which the, because of weak, a weak economic situation and because of the triumphs of social media, editors are now, just because they have to get this celebrity, they are letting celebrities choose who they talk to, interview themselves, you know, have their mother interview them, whatever. <laughs> you know, it is so, it is so flaccid. And uh, I haven't yet ever seen it work, frankly. Have you? No. No, no. Resist it. No, we yes. do, we do resist it. Because I, the I truth is, I, I now have been interviewed a few times. Um, I'm sure both of you have. My feeling is, look, of course you make yourself vulnerable when you do it, 
But what we always say to people we are profiling is, listen, it's our job to ask questions. You can decide whether you're going to answer those questions or not. You can decide how you're going to answer them. But if we're not asking the questions, we're not doing our job. And, and that's what we're here to do. Yeah, but they feel so, they can have like a print selfie now. Right. Where, well, they, where they basically have, the, they have their social yeah. media channels, so they right. don't really need us. Right. But, there, but I think there are enough people, and the, and the magazine we're producing is proof of this, who do understand that when someone asks you questions, you maybe think of something you hadn't thought of, or you think about, you know, you think about your experience in a way that you might not have, have pushed yourself to do. Um, and I think it can be scary, but I also think that it does result in something that is kind of bigger than that. And so for me, it's a little bit of a self-selecting process. Like if there's someone who's not interested in being interviewed, I'm not interested in us interviewing them, you know? And there are, and because you're right, people have their own platforms now, celebrities, politicians, everything. Um, they can say they don't have to take questions because they're just gonna post all of their opinions on Twitter. And, God help and, us. And of course, right, and of course, <laughs> and of course that's sort of true, but at the same time, we're still seeing a lot of media power in the kind of rise and fall of um, well, Beto O'Rourke, for example. Um, and, and, you know, people have their moment when the press really matters to them. So I, I feel... I feel optimistic about continuing that fight, because partly because it's just the legacy of this magazine, and you started that, and yes. in no way would we ever want to back off that. Well, obviously, the, great, the greatest genre of all is the suicide vest piece, right? The Beta O'Rourke cover. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Prince Andrew interview with Emily Maitlis. I mean, there are some wonderful sort of giant flameouts, which are kind of what every magazine and every journalist right. <laughs> you know, hopes might perhaps occur on their own watch. Right. And then you think of the people who should have given the interview that might have actually been enhanced by having that vulnerability shown. For example, Kamala Harris. Remember yes. I said to you, that is the story I want to write because she's being inauthentic. We yeah. need to know who she really is. This isn't working. And I wonder if one of us had sat with her and gotten her real story about her extraordinary immigrant mother who'd yeah. come from Bombay and really pushed her out of that kind of woke thing she was doing, would it in fact have enhanced her campaign? I think you it would. I think you're, you're absolutely right. I, her I reticence, think it, I think, harmed her. But you see, that's part of the gender box again. It's like women get so burned. I mean, they feel so burned when they, when they try to, when they are real, that they retreat into these, you know, inauthentic yes. uh, sort of persona. And it is, again, my experience in putting this book together and reading these pieces is that you, you see the realness, you see the rawness, and you feel like they come out on top. Mm -hmm. Like it's yes. even, even in those moments of vulnerability, there's like a courage to it and a strength to it that I think really comes through. And it's been very inspiring to me um, to look at these pieces and think, okay, well, we face, we're in a different context now. We have different kinds of competition. We have a different um, set of players, but how can we continue to try to make these portraits because I think they really do matter. They do tell a story about um, the people who shape our culture. I mean, one thing that struck me in looking at this again is that none of these women are um, technically, I mean, they're, they're kind of trailblazers. They're, they, have, they're, they're, they are leaders in their fields, but they're not necessarily the CEO. They're not the president. They're the first lady, you know, but they are exercising power in ways that are fascinating. And I feel like that's true of 
everyone you have written about Marie in some way or another. And I think the two strong pieces that for me, I was just struck with them reading them this week, were the, the final two pieces, which Bethany McLean's piece about the travesty of being a woman on Wall Street and the fact that there are so few women in the boardrooms and what happened to her as a young working woman, woman in one of these companies. It just makes you want to scream. And then for me, this incredible piece about the meeting at Miramar of the women in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And you think of, I mean, look at the Golden Globe nominations. Hardly a woman director, if any. Was there even one woman director? No. no. And yet the promise of this piece, written in 2018, where you see all these bright young women directors, so creative, where are they? They have been under the thumb, so that for all of our progress, I feel that we are like a Susan Faludi case study. Three steps forward, two steps yep. back. Well, I hope this book will be a step forward for our readers. And well, it is an inspiring book. I, I do urge you all to yes. read it, because you come up away from it thinking the, the, the brave struggle of every one of these women on the page and how they're all wrestling with this super carapace of this thing that holds them back. And, and, and it's, it's potent, actually, when you read them as a collection of pieces. It's a great idea, Radhika. I pulled the notion of doing it, actually, and I think it's been pulled off very successfully. Thank you, and thank you both for being here. Um, books are available for sale in the lobby, um, and I will be out to chat with you about them and sign if you like. Um, and it's been wonderful to have you as an audience. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92y.org archives. <laughs>